welcome to Board Game Famous, the board game podcast that chronicles two brothers and some friends on their way to board game fame. I'm your host, David, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Michael. Howdy, howdy. And Jesse. Hey, y'all. He's back. It's good to have you back, Jesse. I missed you guys. I missed you for, especially missed you on the top 10, but I'm glad you could send that over so we could get that in our uh, episode description. Yeah, and if you guys didn't read the description for Jesse's top 10, it is a banger. You would say that because I think uh, his top three is the crossover we had between all three of us. <laughs> yes. I have very yes. generic taste. <laughs> you are the, uh, what, the least common multiple? The greatest common denominator, that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we start as always with, hey, Michael, what you been playing? Oh, boy, have I been playing board games. Is that your just your generic intro from now on to this segment? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> we have a podcast about board gaming, so you know what? I play board games. Not because we have a podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> but we gotta play one of Jesse's new games, and I called dibs on talking about it because I showed up to the house late. And they were already playing a game, so I learned how to play this game while they were playing the other game. So, I was the fifth wheel in the house learning (laughs) how to play the next game that we're going to (laughs) play. And so the game is the 2023 Stuff of Legend. Oh, sorry. The Stuff of Legend. Which is based on, I guess, an award-winning graphic novel. Am I correct, Jesse? Yes, that's right. Designed by Kevin Wilson uh, with the artist of Charles Paul Wilson the uh, Third, published by 3WS Games. Any uh, any relations between the designer and the artist? I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that there is any relation. Uh, this game is about a boy who was kidnapped by the boogeyman and the boogeyman takes the boy into his realm which is called the dark and everybody plays as one of the boy's toys the boy's toys you know try to say that (laughs) five times fast and you work together going into the dark and traveling from one place to the next fighting off challenges and uh, monsters trying to figure out where the boy is. Now, this is also a uh, hidden traitor game, so uh, depending on your player count, there's at least one traitor in the group. And there are cards that allow you to kind of figure out that information, and there are people who can sabotage the challenges. And one of the cool things I like about this, there there are plenty of games where um, where you move around from one place to the next. Uh, But in this game, you have to stick together as a party. And you basically go to a place, you get, uh, the party gets to do three actions split between the party members, and then the boogeyman gets to do something. And it's kind of like an automated, automated system. That was, that was pretty fun. Uh, So we had one trader, am I correct, Jesse? There were two traders. There were two traders. I was one of them. It was great. It was... Well, (laughs) I was one of them at first. But I'll let you tell that story. One one of the situations 
that things that you can do is actually switch allegiances. Oh. <laughs> so Jesse was doing a pretty good job staying on the down low, because when, in this game where you're figuring out where the boy is, there are five different options. Each of the four different options. Yeah, four different options. Uh, Jesse was holding up a number for me for those of you who are listening at home, <laughs> which is everybody, unless you're at work. Uh, there's four different options, and you assign a random number uh, to each of those, one through seven. And the boy's located at the highest number, unless the, the unless it's one. Is that correct? So if both seven and one are in play, then one is considered the highest number. Correct. So you kind of have to go around the map through all these winding different environments, trying to checking every single number. And when you check the number, only one person gets to peek at it. Uh, so <laughs> you have to trust each other. Uh, it allows it allows for uh, for for some situations you play cards from your hand uh, to boost actions to be able to, to succeed challenges, and. Uh, they have to accept your help if you're going to play cards from your hand to help someone else complete someone else's challenge. But you can kind of do that and be like, hey, this this might fudge with you for a little bit. <laughs> or, you know, the traders may discard cards that were actually super helpful and, you know, that could fast track you across across the, uh, the world, the dark, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, Jesse, I will let you embellish on how it was being the trade, one of the traders, and you keeping that secret for so long. I thought I was the only trader in the game for the longest time, and I kept throwing my friend Chelsea under the bus. I kept throwing our friend Chelsea under the bus. Funny thing is, Chelsea was also a trader. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not so it's not one of those hidden trader games where everybody like all the evil people all the traders know who the other players no, are. No, we we didn't know. So at the start of the game, you put one loyal to the boy and one loyal to the boogeyman card together and mix them up. One of them goes face down on the board and the other one gets mixed in with the rest. So there might be two traders, there might only be one and you don't know. Um, so I kept throwing her under the bus and also at one point the boogeyman um, gave Michael the power to force someone not to be able to vote for the rest of the game, which really oh, put a wrench yeah. in things. Um, in fact, it was game-changing because... It was it, it was also pretty early into the game, and I had to choose someone. So there I had were... very little information. I chose a good person. I'm a good person. I also <laughs> chose a good person. <laughs> there were five of us playing, and so with five playing... By Michael choosing a good person, there were then two traders who could vote and two uh, loyal to the boys who could vote. Um, so once the traders were pretty much revealed, we were able to sabotage all attempts to vote. Um, and the tiebreaker gets passed from person to person. So we effectively like ground the game to a halt. And the only way the game was able to end was in the end, I used a... a muddy the waters card to trade roles with the person who couldn't vote um so he <laughs> he became a traitor at the last second and then we won it was great i do want to I, I do want to stop you right there for a second i just want to say uh, i think you just said in your description the new catchphrase of this podcast loyal to the boys loyal, loyal to, to the boys, boys. <laughs> loyal to the boys i was always loyal to the boy <laughs> uh I definitely enjoyed playing this game. 
uh, I would definitely want to play again. <laughs> that whole stalling period, I could see that getting a little bit annoying for somebody. If you get into that situation where the boogeyman curses someone from being able to vote and you don't have that information and then you get into a uh, a, a split vote. Oh, yeah. Here's my biggest question I have for the two of you. How long did it take? Because I find that Hidden Trader games like that have a, have a playtime shelf life. Do you think it was about two hours, Michael? Uh, I think it was about... I think it was about two hours with learning the rules. Yeah, it was relatively fast. Oof, that is not what I was thinking. <laughs> Have you two? Wait, you you still haven't you still haven't played um, Unfathomable, Unfathomable, or, uh, or the Battlestar other... Galactica, Battlestar Battlestar Galactica, uh, Battlecar Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I haven't played that yet, and I'm a little hesitant too because I think hours long hidden trader just isn't good isn't that good for me is it because you're a bad liar no i'm a great liar <laughs> or am i <laughs> <laughs> but def- definitely look forward to playing this again and jesse since you got to do a lot of talking just now how about you just talk about what you have also been playing um well it's been a while since i've recorded with you guys and I have logged well over a hundred games since our last record together. In two months? Individual games? <laughs> Individual <laughs> games? Like plays of games. Okay, okay, okay. So I went home to see my family in Minnesota and literally I brought thirty-four games with me and we played at least probably twenty of them during the visit. Um it was great. I got a lot of I got a lot of games to the table that have been on the shelf of shame. Um, but two games I want to talk about are Fiction and City of the Great Machine. Um, first off, Fiction is my favorite new small box game. It was designed by Peter C. Hayward and published by Allplay. It's a 2023 release in which you try to best the librarian as a team and guess the secret word from classic literature. It's a Wordle-inspired game in which the librarian, uh, you get it, the librarian, chooses a five-letter word from a card that is a page of literature from a book like The Great Gatsby or Moby Dick. And much like Wordle, the guessers get to make guesses of words that it could be. They get five guesses in the first 10 minutes, and then they get another five guesses in the last 10 minutes. And you might be saying, why do they need 10 guesses? It's Wordle. Well, the librarian can and must lie about exactly one clue in every response they give. This sounds very unlibrarian like It's super tricky. <laughs> it's it's a great little game. Now, almost every game I've played the players have won and the librarian has lost. I did win one time as the librarian and it was great. The the lies you can tell like you've played Wordle, right? Like everybody's played Wordle, right? I've played Mastermind. Yeah, it's like Mastermind, but with words. <laughs> um, so the responses for each letter in your guess is that you either have the right letter in the right spot, the right letter in the wrong spot, or a wrong letter. Now, the librarian can lie and say the wrong letter is a right letter but in the wrong spot, or they can lie and say that a right letter is not in the word at all, or that it's in the word but in the wrong spot. So they have ways to trick other people. Um, it's cooperative except for the librarian, so... The more players it is, I find the harder it gets because they have a harder time agreeing on the logic of things. 
Um, the guessers also get three factor fiction tokens that they can use to ask about a guess to say like, is this particular response in this guess a fact? Is it true or is this your lie? And that can really help them start deducing. I give this game an 8.6. It's an amazing filler game, but it needs the right group. It doesn't play well with a group that's not into lying or that's not into word games, but super fun little small box game for like 15 or $20. The other game I wanted to talk about is City of the Great Machine. And the reason I want to talk about this one was because it was my number five want to play in 2023. It's a one versus many strategy game in the Victorian steampunk universe. It's designed by German Tikhomanov and published by Crowd Games. Um, in this game, one player plays as the Great Machine, or you can have like an AI play the Great Machine. The Great Machine tries to anticipate the moves of the heroes and stop them from spreading unrest while trying to achieve its master plan, which is the enslavement of humanity. Um, and the heroes are trying to start a revolution by encouraging discontent and starting riots and stopping the master plan. Um, it has a modular board, so it can change out around a lot. And there's even ways that both the great machine and the heroes can move the board. Things I liked about this game were the hidden movement that isn't really hidden. It's really planned movement. And then the great machine tries to anticipate where you're going to move. I don't like hidden movement as a mechanism because I get lost in the, I think it's here, I think it's here. Well, in this, you find out where they move eventually, like their pieces are on the board. It's just, you have to anticipate it if you're the great machine. I think the theme is a lot of fun. I like the components, they're really nice. The insert is good. There are event cards that change things up a lot. There are different heroes. Um, I always enjoy one versus many games. Um, and the game we played felt very, very close, and it felt like either side could have won. In fact, it all came down to a die roll on the escape die in the end, but the Great Machine did win. I would give this an 8. I'd like to play it again. Um, it was fun. Yeah, the one the one versus many category is one that I, I haven't really gotten a chance to play a lot of games out of, and I'm interested into like, jumping into that kind of category. We have the Goonies Never Say Die, which is a one versus all, but... I haven't had a chance to play that one yet. Well, if you're like me and you like being on a power trip, be the one. Um, otherwise, be the many. <laughs> I I was part of the many heroes who failed to save humanity from the Great Machine. Um, but it was super fun. Highly recommend. Definitely looking forward to trying it again and seeing if a second, third play is as good as the first. Um, so, David, what have you been playing lately? I've also been playing a lot of board games. I have been playing board games, let me tell you. My name is David, and I play board games. <laughs> <laughs> You're stealing my line, get out of here. I was trying to do more of a Hot Rod reference near the end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so I wanted to talk about, I also wanted to talk about two games that I've been playing, mostly for their expansions and the difference in what they add to their respective games. So the first game I want to talk about is Parks by Keymaster Games, and the other one is Meadow by Rebel Studios. Now, Parks, I've already talked about one of the expansions, Nightfall. I've considered it an essential expansion. Uh, I recently got to play with the Wildlife expansion, which is the most recent expansion, and I am having trouble deciding which expansion I think is more essential, because... Wildlife is just another incredible expansion for the game of Parks. 
they knock it out of the park. Ha ha, uh, another pun in this in this podcast. Suck it, no pun included. <laughs> <laughs> shout out shout out to no pun included. What what wildlife adds to parks is it's one of those expansions that's more stuff. And there's also a few little rule tweaks that I really enjoyed. Uh, so it really just beefs up what you get in the base game. You don't need the Nightfall expansion to get wildlife. It adds more parks cards. It adds more gear cards. It adds more weather cards. And it adds more canteen cards, which I think are limited piles within the game that you might see over and over. So just this gives you more variety and it's a breath of fresh air into the game. It also adds new action tiles for the trail that players travel along. So your trail, in the base game, you have four actions, you see one a season. Now there are more than four actions, and you mix them up and get four different ones each game. So it adds a little bit of variety into your game of parks. On top of that, there are two rules tweaks that I really like. So in the base game, there weren't that many canteen cards, and if you chose the action to draw a new canteen card, there was a good chance you would draw one that you already have. Well, this expansion beefs up the canteen deck, and it says every time you would gain a canteen, flip over two, pick one. Perfect. Love it. Easy change. Makes the game better. And then on top of that, the most fun thing about Parks the board game is visiting the parks. It always feels good to spend your resources, get this parks card that has beautiful art, put it in front of you, claim it, go, this is mine, this is worth points. And in the base game, I had a house rule if the bonus park action because one of those four action tiles that you could visit along the trail is do a parks action uh if it hasn't shown up by round three put it out there because you need that in the game just to have more fun is what i've always thought it lets you visit more parks more often well the expansion says you're gonna shuffle up all the tiles pick three of them and the first tile you always add is the parks tile so starting round one you can visit more parks and it's just a ton of fun. I think it's every decision they made was in the right direction. And I've shuffled everything in. I'm never going to remove it. The only downside to this expansion is it is for the second edition only. I have the first edition, which means the backs of the cards have more words on them. So I have weather cards that say weather on the back or canteen or gear. Whereas in the second edition, it's all iconography. Now, Keymaster Games did has a program where they say, hey, donate your first edition game to a school, a library, or something like that. Give us proof that you donated it. We'll send you a second edition for free. So that is honestly awesome from that company. I just really like my first edition copy. You know, it's, it's one of the first games that Ellen chose on Kickstarter. She's like, I want this game. I was like, perfect, let's do it. So it's got, you know, kind of special meeting. So I'm not getting rid of my, not getting rid of my copy, but it, it does not quite match with the expansion. And then the other game is another game that I love, and it's called Meadow. And the expansion for Meadow is called Meadow Downstream. And this is a... a, a, I like the expansion, but this is by no means essential. It adds a new board, it gives you a new action tile, and a whole new river mechanism. So in Meadow, you are placing arrows along a grid of cards... That, and your arrow has a number on it. That number tells you how far you go into the grid to grab a specific card. 
Now you have a specific downstream arrow and there's a specific downstream area of cards that you're grabbing cards from. Those cards are not worth points in themselves, but they do move your canoeer down the river. And you get certain bonus actions if you pass certain spaces and you get bonus points at the end of the game, depending on how far your canoeer makes it down the river. Now, the, the... Expansion is extremely well-balanced. I've played with it two times now, and whenever I play with an expansion, I usually go heavy into the expansion material, if that's an option, and I won one time barely, and I lost one time barely. So it's, it's balanced in there. But the problem that I have with this one is it gives every single player another action pawn, another action arrow that they have to spend every round on that river area which means the game is now 20 to 25% longer based on player count. And it's just that kind of time investment is not a great thing for an expansion to add, I think. And they could have done something to tweak it. Now, I normally play this just two-player. I I did play the expansion two-player and then three-player. I don't want to do it four-player because that's just too long. Just adding, bolting that time on top of a game that is already probably a little over an hour for players. I don't want that additional time investment on top of that. And, and I think that's probably a step in the wrong direction for a higher player count. Any questions? I played this. No, I played this game once. There sure oh, it's, are It's so cute. It. It's got great, great pictures <laughs> of animals. I love it. And the real shame is the box art on Meadow Downstream is better than the original box because it's got an otter on the front. So cute. Are you, are you just saying otters are inherently better? Yeah, because, well, like, the first, like, the original cover is, like, a weasel or something. <laughs> All right, you the... heard it here first. David hates weasels. <laughs> no, what I said is otters are cuter than weasels. Uh, you heard it here first. Uh, David thinks that weasels should be eradicated. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, did I convince you to uh, start playing with wildlife right away? I, I, I might play tonight. We'll see. <laughs> wow that would be fast I mean, it's well such a- i own the copy of wildlife i got the really nice pieces from Keymaster games at the board game convention we went to and i still haven't played it and the fact that you're talking about it it's just like what am i doing <laughs> what am i doing yeah i need you to play it and tell me if you like nightfall better or wildlife better because i think they're both yeah. great expansions Shout out to the nice pieces that you can get from Keymaster Games. Mm-hmm. Hashtag go to conventions. <laughs> and now it's time for our next segment, Road to the Game of the Fortnite. That's right, we're combining two segments this time. One of the Road to the 100 and Game of the Fortnite. Because a few... Was it months ago at this point? I have no idea. About a month and a half ago. When did you visit? About about (laughs) a month and a half ago. Yeah. I got to visit North Carolina. I got to visit Charlotte, North Carolina, where my brother lives, where Jesse lives, and where quite a few of you listeners live. It was nice to meet you guys. And and, uh, I got to play Dominant Species. One of Jesse's one of Jesse's top ten. If you've looked at the description of our last top ten video, shout out to our last video. Not uh, video. It was a, it was a podcast. <laughs> shout out to our last podcast. 
for you listeners at home. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, what format is this? <laughs> Jesse, I think you're the most familiar with this game. You want to give the rundown on how it plays and then your your thoughts? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think I've talked about it on here before, like when I first Oh, for joined. sure. Um, but we haven't talked about it as Game of the Fortnite. I know, I'm about to talk about it. <laughs> Um, Dominant Species is a 2010 game, which in terms of modern board games sounds almost ancient, but it holds up, I think. It was designed by Chad Jensen and is published by GMT Games, and it won a 2011 Golden Geek Board Game of the Year Award. Um, it's description, with an ice age approaching, which animals will best propagate, migrate, and adapt? Um, this is a game that uses action selection as a main mechanism. Um, so each round starts with all players taking turns selecting their actions for the round, and then the actions are resolved in a particular order from the top down on the game board, followed by a cleanup phase. There's an ever-expanding ever hexagon map that is always being added to through the Wanderlust action and always being changed through Glaciation. And on that map, all players are vying for majority within hex spaces, um, having the most cubes, and also dominating for vying for dominance, um, meaning they can eat the most there. That is, I think, for new players, the trickiest thing about this game is not understanding, like, oh, the number of cubes I have there has nothing to do with how much I can eat. That has to do with what food is available there and what foods I have on my map. What I love about this game is the dominance cards because they can be really game-changing and they can be something um, that is heavily fought over. There are a lot of tight decisions. With six players, you only get three actions per round, so you have to really make every action count. And there are so many things you can choose from, and you're always asking yourself, what are the right things at any given moment? Um, there are exactly three ways to score VPs in the game, which are Glaciation, Wanderlust, and Dominance, but you can't ignore the other things like Adaptation and Migration. And I love this game, but I have not won a play of this game in at least six years. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's that. It's a game that I can enjoy losing at. So uh, what else would you guys add about it? This game... It's all about survival. Survival of the smartest. Because we are players controlling these different species. But one of my favorite things about this game, there are two phases. The phase where you are placing your pawns, and then the phase where you're resolving those pawns. So turn order does matter so that you can get that action that you've always wanted. That's kind of like worker, every worker placement game. Your position in the turn order to get that one key action at that key time so you can get that resource exactly when you need it. Mm, it sings. It's one of the best parts about worker placement games, and this game does it fantastic. But when you place your pawn, it doesn't resolve immediately. It resolves after all the pawns are placed, and it is top to bottom, left to right. So knowing that this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, plays very key 
that order of operations on how the workers, those action pawns are going to resolve plays very key. And it can get into some really tricky situations where it's like, oh, I might have to play a little defensively because Jesse went into the attack spot. I And he probably hates me this round, so he's going to attack me. Jesse's... Jesse's making a symbol like he's never attacked anyone Who, in the game before in his <laughs> I life. Never. <laughs> hey, I was not the spiders. That was someone else sitting at this uh, camera. Uh, so, so the fact that it's a worker placement, uh, but it resolves top to bottom, left to right, that order of operations being a very integral part, and I like how the different species have does one thing very, very well. That was also really cool, so... Uh, this this game slaps. Ugh. Let's not bring this back two episodes in a row. <laughs> David, it was your first time playing it when you played with us, and you were actually the winner, so you must have loved it. Uh, what were your thoughts of the game? So, I'm not huge on area control games, but this is a very different area control game than I've ever played before. It was an interesting take on the mechanism. So, Michael and Jesse were just talking about like the attacking action. The attack action is not incredibly powerful you remove one person's cube you remove one cube from one person on a few different territories but sometimes when you propagate you're propagating three four five eight cubes down on the board so you can really assert your like your population into a certain area and, and i thought that was incredibly interesting i think the theme comes through pretty well for uh a cubes on a map game uh, I found myself backed into a corner pretty early on, and then I realized that this game is all about adaptation, just like uh, like it should be in a evolution survival kind of game. I had a good time with it. I'd play it again. Yeah, it was it was it was a good it was a hoot hoot and a half. I don't. I think the each each player each animal has a specific special ability, and I'm not sure how those balance out between like player counts one of the actions that you can take will prevent you you can add food to your that to your creature so you can eat more things which lets you survive on more hexes or you can protect a food from going into what's it called downgrade dereliction uh, devastation something like that regression depletion De yeah, De regression depletion wasteland Regression, depletion, wasteland. Regress regression is whenever you lose the ability to eat that resource. And so, so one of the actions, regression lets you, uh, is like Michael said, is when you have to lose a resource you can eat. However, my snake's ability was I automatically could block one of those. And in a six full player count game like we played, uh, everybody else was taking all of the food that would funnel down into regression. So I never had to take that action. And, and I think that would be more important to the snakes in a lower player account game. So that was my only concern for the longevity of this. I don't know if it's most balanced at six players or not. I was going to say BGG recommends that it's best with four players, but I like it best with six. I liked, uh, I liked my strategy of dumping all of my cubes in the highest, highest, play, uh, highest point value tiles for in-game scoring. I think that worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. This game also has... Uh has the advantage of every turn counts. I, I like how there's a lot of jockeying for position all the way to the very end. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like you're down and out. You might not you might know that you might not win, but 
you can do a little bit of jockeying for mac maximized points uh, for the entire game. Yeah, I think I think the heart and soul of this game is definitely what you guys have both talked about is the fact that you are placing your workers out, but you see exactly which pawn is going to activate first as everybody's placing them out and going, ooh, I wasn't expecting them to take that there. I need to immediately take this action to, to counteract that. All right, David, it was your first time. As both of Road to the 100 and Game of the Fortnite, do you, David the brother, give it the coveted Gold Star Award? Ooh, I was thinking I wouldn't give it the Gold Star, but it made me think back to the thing I said at the beginning of this, which is I don't normally like area control games, but this is something special. Ah, oh, man. I don't know. I'm going to reserve judgment. I've only played it one time. Uh, so I would recommend a play of it, but I don't know if I'm going to give it the gold star just yet. All right, Jesse gives it a gold star. Moving on to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I, I would rate this a 9.8 for myself at least, and maybe even a 10. Um, it's been in my top five basically always since I started playing. It's one of the first modern board games I played, and it's a game I have always loved, and every single time I've played it, I've enjoyed it. So, Michael, moving on to you. I would also give this a gold star. There's something special about area control where it's not just the person who survives in the area, that there are viable strategies for just existing in the area, which makes very, very, which makes a lot of sense for the theme of different species cohabitating in area, but if, but also competing. I, I just like that this uh, this game did that concept very well of, of you are competing for control of area, but you can still coexist to a degree. <laughs> I guess I didn't. I didn't mention that you brought it up briefly, Jesse. But I, I don't think you really captured how annoying the difference between population and dominance is, <laughs> because your population does not affect your dominance. It's only the foods that you can eat in that hex that affect your dominance. And I could not wrap my brain around that for like the first three rounds. We know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you still won. So what can we say? Facts. <laughs> Thanks for going easy on me. <laughs> and the next section is Brother Talk, where we talk about a new board game related topic each fortnight. And David, you explained this the best. So what's this fortnight's topic? This fortnight's topic, I wanted to talk about the sour play. And you might be confused by that phrase. Jesse was definitely confused. He asked me to explain it further. Well, I consider the sour play to be the exact opposite of the perfect play, which is what I think our first episode was about. And listening back to our first episode, I think Michael was still confused about what I meant by the perfect play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of us who haven't listened to the first episode in almost two years, can you give us a brief recap of what the perfect play is? So the perfect play is a is a play of a game where everybody enjoys the experience, the game promises and delivers on that promise to the players. It's one of those games where you end and even if you lose, you go, man, I want to play that again. That, in my mind, is the perfect play. I wouldn't call that the perfect play. What would you call that? The ideal play? The, the happy play of a game? What, what would you call it? What would you name it? It's called how you should play board games. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's what board game experiences should be. That's most that's most experiences for me. <laughs> you just have a great time playing all board games all the time. 
I just love playing board games, man. <laughs> <laughs> but please, explain what the sour play is. So the sour play is when you play a game and it just falls flat. Either due to a rule being played wrong, the wrong group of players, the wrong player count, something in the setup of the game, if there's some randomized setup, and it just doesn't, the game just doesn't give that promise that it would have. David, is this a, is this a term you've coined? Is this a trademark that you're putting out into the world? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because <laughs> I couldn't find anything on the internets about it. No, I've actually just been thinking about this recently because uh, I have raved about decorum. And I first started really thinking about this as a topic for the podcast. The last time I played decorum, I still had a good time playing decorum. However, in decorum, you everybody has secret rules that you're trying to decorate a house in. And the game is finished when everybody cooperatively decorates the house and it meets every single person's rules. While within the game... You can, there are breaks in the game where you share your secret rules with other players. I had a set of rules that was non-confrontational. Nobody was messing up my rules. I wasn't messing up anybody else's rules. So when it came to rule sharing, nobody gave me information. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea what to do for the rest of the game. Like three or four rounds. It was just, and and it, it... I still had fun listening to the other players suffering <laughs> uh, and, and trying and getting in each other's way. But I realized that I wasn't really having an impact on that game. Uh, and it made me think about other times that games have fallen flat for me. Uh, and I usually fix this with house rules. And we've talked about house rules in the past. Um, so there have been setups of Dominion. Dominion I've had the most sour plays of, mostly because I've played it the absolute most game. I've played Dominion more than any other game I've ever played, so just mathematically I'm going to have more sour plays of it. To the point where, when I set up Dominion, I make there sure there are certain cards, certain types of cards available in the kingdom to make it more fun for all of the players, to make more strategies viable. Because sometimes you, you set out ten random cards and it's like, okay, I'm going to buy from those two sets and that's it, and that's the game. And to me, that's not fun. That's not what Dominion's about. Uh, it, it takes three sets to end the game in Dominion. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You you buy you buy from two actions and then all the provinces are gone and that's it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> and and to me that's not fun. So I try and counteract that with house rules. I I review a setup. No no Dominion setup I play is truly random anymore. Uh, I talked about it when I was talking about parks. If I, I introduced the house rule of hey if the park's action isn't out by round three. We're putting it out in round three. Well, they fixed that in in the expansion. So that's that's perfect. That's great. I don't have to do that as a house rule anymore. That's just a rule now. So have you guys had have you guys had any games that you love fall flat within like the wrong player count, wrong group, wrong time because it's two a.m. What about when you played Ark Nova and you couldn't get any apes or whatever it was? <laughs> consider that a, would you consider that a sour play? No, I wouldn't consider it a sour play. It's not that I couldn't get any apes. It's that I couldn't play those dang tigers out of my hand. And I'll have <laughs> you know that when we tried to play online, I had the tigers in my hand again. And I still couldn't play them. <laughs> oh. I will play Ark Nova, and I will play the tigers, and it will be the greatest moral victory I've ever had. No, I wouldn't consider that a sour play, because that was... 
I I looked up, I saw it coming, and I went, oh, this is within the rules. I see what's going to happen. I'm, I'm thinking more of a, everybody. you play a game and you can tell nobody's having fun. But this is a game that you like, you love, and you're trying to teach it. Uh, one one example is uh, root when someone places the otters and no one trades with the otters. Yeah, is that just that there's a sour <laughs> taste in your mouth? Uh, I I wasn't the otters. I was the otters. <laughs> you remember that I game? Forgot, I forgot. Yes, I remember that game. I had forgotten it until you brought it up. I love root. It's one of my favorite games. But I will probably never, by choice, play as the river folk again because. I just couldn't get their mechanic to work. No one would trade with me, and I couldn't figure out how to use it to my advantage, uh, except by like lowering my standards so much that I was getting trash for my treasure for my treasured precious cards. It also didn't help that as players, we didn't know the value of what you were offering. Truly, I don't think I so. hated the play of the game. I just don't think I enjoyed that faction for my play style. Which surprised me because I thought it would be my playstyle. This kind of sounds like a sour play to me. Yeah, yeah I, guess I, mean, so. I think that would be. I think that would make sense. I think that would make sense. I really struggled trying to think of times I've had sour plays because I think most of the time I focus on the positive, memorable, fun experiences, and I like shove those negative experiences to the back of my brain. Well, it sounds like you definitely do that based on how Michael had to remind you. <laughs> I, I've had a lot of non-ideal gameplays, but that usually comes down to, like, oh, the person was a terrible teacher, or uh, different situations like that, or someone is not playing by the rules. So, uh, you know, like, I'm, I'm with a group of people, and they're uh, playing a social deduction game, and I'm just going along because I want everybody to have fun, and they're kind of doing things that are that are against the spirit of the game and i'm just like what are we even doing here yeah <laughs> like if we're gonna play if we're gonna play a social deduction game there are certain kinds of things that you're supposed to follow such that the game makes sense so um uh, games have rules for a reason and if there's a bit of anarchy <laughs> actual you know i could say that arc nova sour play just me getting frustrated with using the format of board game arena I am still not 100% happy with, <laughs> with with the layout of that game, or most games online. So, But that that just comes down to, like, I like being able to take my cards, rearrange them in a specific order in my hand, so I, it, it makes visual sense. It's not something you can really do in those kinds of settings. I think if you play it more, you get used to it. Like, I played Arc Nova on BGA a bunch of times, and I really quite like it. Like, I think it's a good implementation of it. Oh, I, I think mechanically it's very smooth. Uh, I think it's a personal thing, and but I'm also willing to play again so David can play those tigers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get them down eventually. <laughs> Gonna play those tigers. But Jesse and I used to frequent going to our local board game store and playing with a bunch of strangers and, and a lot of people that we knew. So there are definitely a lot of non-ideal board gaming situations that I've <laughs> that I've gotten myself into. <laughs> yeah, there are some. But you know, yeah, I, I just love I just love this hobby so much. Like Jesse says, you know, I keep moving forward. I, I love board gaming, so whatever. 
I guess I, I guess I focus too much on the negatives and just like Jesse, I gotta, I gotta push them down and focus on the positives. <laughs> I don't know. Now that we're thinking about it, and now that Michael was talking about that, I'll remember a play of Summoner City that I did at um at our game group one time, and one person in the group just was so frustrated and was just gonna walk away from the table and just gonna quit, and then she won. Um, and it was just not a pleasant <laughs> experience because she was like pitching a temper tantrum every round and. Everyone was like having to explain to her how to play, and it's a simultaneous play game, so who knows if she was playing by the rules or not, but it was a frustrating experience. I would say my sourest play is not from a game I love, but from a game I expected to love, because it was with people I love, it was with Michael and our other kind of core gaming group of friends, and that was Oath. The first time we played Oath... Yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. Look, I watched the video how to play at least twice. I read through the rule book at least twice. I didn't fully understand it. I was busy trying to cook and clean and make sure that like the house was set up. Our sixth player who joined us never spoke to us again after this. Like he totally ghosted us. Um, Michael was upset and said, we'll never play this again at six players. And I just had such a sour time that I said, Whoever wins takes the game with them, and then they can play with four players, and then I've made sure to never get to play it again. I hate it. I don't want it. It's on my shelf. I'm looking at it now. Please take it off my shelf, Michael. I hate it. I wish... That that one kind of hurts, because I was hoping that I would enjoy Oath more, and I don't understand how people can rate that 7.8 aggregate on BGG. I really like uh, Cole Whirl and his other stuff. What what do I got to do to get that that game here? Because Ellen keeps looking at it because she loves Kyle Farron's art. It's all like, yours. It's just so take expensive. It. Please take it. If I had known, I would have shoved it in my suitcase and brought it <laughs> home with me. <laughs> we'll we'll figure something out. I'll I'll send you money for shipping. <laughs> yeah that 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 whole and we have played freaking Twilight Imperium. It's like it's not like Oath should be that complicated, but it is just so nitpicky, and all this little stuff. It was, it was a struggle. I'm sorry you hated it. I didn't hate it. Yeah, I have I have a sour <laughs> taste in my mouth now. It's not pleasant. I'm gonna go brush my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I have played bad games, and that I wouldn't consider that a bad game. It's just fiddly in all the wrong ways. Okay. Well. Now that we're all all down in gloom and doom, I guess I could just only end this segment with saying, hey, focus on the positives. How, how do we avoid sour plays? If we're being conscientious gamers, how do we avoid creating situations where sour plays occur? Communication and honesty. Yes. That's, that's pretty much it. And, and house rules to prop up some games if they need it, if they need a little help there. Because there are some games that aren't there that are amazing that just need a little help. Now it's time for mail time and our call out in one of our previous podcasts work. We did worked. We did have somebody email us a question. So this question comes from Mitchell and his question is, he says, I don't have a ton of time for board games. So when I do, I would really love them to be quality, interesting, engaging, and most of all fun. Because of that, I rely heavily on reviewers opinions, whether that be board game geeks, population or of reviews and rankings, YouTubers, bloggers, and the like. 
I wondered, would you guys feel comfortable about reviewing some reviewers, or at least shouting out some of your guys' favorites? First off, I am not going to talk about people that I'm not necessarily the ones that I don't like, uh, for multiple reasons. One, I don't want to spread bad juju. Especially after Sour Play was just all bad juju. <laughs> I want to spread bad juju, unnecessary bad juju in, in this board gaming hobby. Uh, and two, I may run into these people at some point in my life. And whether or not I like the product that they're creating, I could still be down to play board games with them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to go on record saying that I dislike any one reviewer. But I will go on record of saying that uh, the two places where I like my reviews the most are Shut Up and Sit Down and No Pun Included. And they focus primarily not on just top quality reviews, but reviews as entertainment. They showed that board game reviews can be entertainment. And they do a very good job of explaining what it feels like to play a game. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. I think those are my top two go-to places for board game reviews. What about you, Jesse? I don't read or watch a lot of reviews. Um, but You just I, buy board games blindly? I do. I rely on my guts and my instincts. I, I do look at BGG a lot, though. I think that the ratings can be a guidepost and that you can use comparisons from there. I am more likely to watch like how to play videos than I am to watch like a review video and through the how to play to see if it seems like the kind of game with mechanics I would enjoy. Um, I would say obviously like Rado's the one that comes to mind right away. I do like Rado. Yeah, Rado's super helpful. And there are some others like I can't, I don't watch enough to like know them by name, but there are some others when I see them, I'm like, oh, I like this person. They're really good. Yeah, I'm not super helpful in this. Sorry. Sorry, Mitchell. <laughs> so I don't... I don't like them. They're not like my favorite reviewers. for uh, The people from the Dice Tower. But just the sheer amount of quantity they put out. They cover so many games. And that's, I think, also important for the hobby. Because there are some games that I play that don't get a lot of coverage. And sometimes I just hear about them because of the Dice Tower. And that's the only place I've heard about them. I should mention Tantrum House. I think Tantrum House is awesome. They have a really nice podcast. Um, they do a lot of reviews of upcoming games. I think that they tend to like lighter weight games sometimes, but I think that their opinions can be really helpful. And there's a lot of them, so they can cover a lot of different board games. That's kind of like, like why I like uh, adding Jesse on as our podcast. Just another another person to talk about all the games he gets to play. And we're still going to end up talking about Everdell. <laughs> <laughs> it's not our fault. It's in all of our top ten. That's so good. I played it two days ago. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another podcast. Come back in another fortnight where we should have another podcast for your listening pleasure. Uh, until then, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at boardgamefamous at gmail.com. Or you can join our very active Discord using the link below. It's been very active. It's been very active the last couple days. Yeah. I love talking to everybody on that. It's so fun. Or you can join our you can join our less active Instagram. I need to post on there more. <laughs> it's your turn. <laughs> it is it really is my turn. I've been meaning to. <laughs> 
also using the link below. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye, y'all. Bye, now. Bye, now.